Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Moore, one of the pastors on staff here. And if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings 13. This will conclude our series on Elisha, or Elijah and Elisha. As we prepare to read, and we'll be in verses 14 to 25, the question, how do you, how do you close a series is a good one. Um, and the, the imagery I want to give you for our time this morning is kind of, kind of one of a, just an airplane. Um, you know, we're about to read something that's going to be really weird. And, and you've probably heard some things over the past several weeks that are really weird and strange. And, and it can, you know, it's in many ways is why we avoid the Old Testament. But uh, what's helpful with this is that um, as we understand what's going on in this particular time period in this section of Scripture is to come back up to the 30,000-foot level to begin to view the entire story of Scripture and what God is really doing in the midst of this uh, to help us understand what is going on in Second Kings 13 as well. And so if you want to think about it like that, you know, when we started uh, this series, um, we, 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 you know, panned over the entire story of Scripture and we went down and hit the runway of Elijah and Elisha, and now we're beginning to take and go back up again, okay? So that's where I'm going if you want a visual for thought process. If that's not helpful, just forget about it. (laughs) But let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. This is the death of Elisha. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Verse 19. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Verse 20, so Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence even until now. When Hazel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then then Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoaz, his father in war, 
Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Let us pray uh, and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you uh, for this day and for your word and how it speaks truth and how it is truth to us. And so at this time, we pray for a miracle and we pray that by that, that you would soften hardened hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we could see and hear your word. Uh, Otherwise, we could not. We ask these things for your glory alone. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'm sure many of you have found yourself in a place where maybe to your surprise, um, maybe you felt guilt over even saying something like this. Um, Maybe you learned something about yourself, but whatever it is, uh, you found yourself around people that allowed you to say or made you say just sort of naturally, these are my people, right? These are my people. This, This is my kind of place. These are my people. For whatever reason, uh, when Ada and I go or get to go um, away by ourselves, it's usually about day three where either to myself, Ada will say, or to those we're with, uh, it's about day, day three or four. Um, she'll turn and she'll say, well, this has been fun, but I'm ready to be with my people. At which point I look at her and I'm like, well, what am I? Yeah. You know, Where do I fit in all this? And what she means is she's ready to be home with her four daughters. And what I think she actually means more than just being with her four daughters is she's ready to be with with everybody, have everybody together. Sure, this time with Ryan or whoever we're with is great, and, and, and he's great and whatever. But what I really long for, where I really feel at home, um, and what really, for Ada, what life in some sense is all about is being with her people, being with her family, those who she loves dearly. I'm not sure what it is for you. We could have a lot of fun going around finding out where do you feel like you belong, right? What are your people? But the reason I start here is because as we enter into this section of Scripture, uh, we, we, we're going to hear about victory. And we're going to talk about the victory of God here as we leave Elijah and Elijah. And we are um, going to need to ask the question, what does the victory of God actually look like? Um, for us, victory could be just look, look at the scoreboard, right? We have more points than the other team. Victory could be uh, we are going to just destroy everybody and then we're going to live our peaceful lives somewhere else. But for God, victory means one thing and one thing only. And I'm being extremely simple, simplistic here, but I don't think it gets around the truth of what Scripture is about entirely, and that is what victory is for God is one thing, and that is being with his people. And he is committed on every page of Scripture to making sure that that happens, so much so that we find out what the victory of God really looks like in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that in a second. But that is what we mean when we say what the victory of God will be for Israel here in this text and what the victory of God will be for all of us as we navigate uh, our our way through this text this morning. And so there are three points that I want to give you that are not in your bulletin. And they are the victory that God longs to give us, the victory that God will give us, and what the hope of that victory is anchored in. So let me say this one more time. The victory God longs to give us, the victory... God will give us and what the hope of that victory is anchored in or to. 
Okay? So with that, let's take that first one, the victory God longs to give. If you look at verses 14 and 19, which make up uh, the majority of our text this morning, we see something that in one sense is, is strange. Uh, it's very difficult to understand this, and certainly this is culturally removed from any of our context. We have probably never shot an arrow out of a window as a testimony and a declaration to victory. Um, in response to celebration, we probably have never fired off three or four arrows into the ground. Um, I know that I haven't. Uh, maybe, maybe you have. I don't know. What, what, what might be more comparable to this is, and, and as it pertains to celebration, is perhaps maybe we popped a cork of champagne, all right? Uh, or maybe we've, we've thrown a reception or a party. But in verses 14 to 19, here is what has happened. The king of Israel has just been promised through or from God through Elisha victory over his worst enemy, the Syrians in this case. And his response is nothing more than half-hearted belief. That's the weight, it's the burden here of what we're reading that may not come through if we don't understand this. Uh, let me use an, an illustration, another Cubs illustration at that while I can. Uh, reporters, you know, if you were to go, if you were to be on the field after the Cubs won the World Series, <clears throat> if you were a reporter and you were to go back into the locker room and to interview some of the players, you would probably expect, if you've been familiar with what baseball teams tend to do after the World Series or any professional team, to be um, just showered in champagne or celebration, right? Uh, there are some of the best uh, footages of, interview, of people going to do interviews, and they are just in the mix of it all, uh, trying to do an interview on a player, yet somebody is dumping a bottle of champagne on their head, and they can't even see, and their eyes are burning, um, this is what you would expect to see, just people celebrating all over the place. But if that, if think about like, think about that, but then think about this. What if you were to go into that Cubs dugout and you walked in there and everybody was just sitting in their chairs, <clears throat> maybe getting dressed, I guess, uh, maybe a few high fives. You noticed a bottle being passed around, but it was grape juice, you know, You'd want you'd to scratch your head wondering, am I in the right place here? Am I in the right, right dugout? If you were that reporter, you might be wondering these things. Is this the type of response someone should be having after winning the World Series? I'm not exactly sure what that should be, if champagne is correct either. I'm just saying, um, you know, never mind breaking in this situation a 108-year losing streak. No, if you saw that, you'd almost be inclined to wonder if they cared at all, right? Something very similar is happening here in 14 to 19 in response to Elijah's promise of victory. Instead of emptying the quiver, if you will, which is what the king should have done, he manages to fire off three before he stops. And why? Why does he stop as the question the test act, the text gets us to ask, it's because he only believes in what he can see. Let me say that again. He only believes in what it is that he sees. Let me try to explain this. The king really has two choices here in this moment. The first choice is to believe Elijah, to believe God, to believe that he has actually given him victory over his enemies here, uh, to believe the person that God is using to speak to him, who he has used throughout uh, this king's life, uh, doing miraculous things to prove um, that, that God is actually here to do a redemptive work for Israel. 
Not just to prove that he's God, but to actually prove that he has plans to rescue and bring them victory. That's the first. The second is to put his faith in what he sees. And what does he see? The periods when Israel would experience peace would be when Syria, which is also Aram, when they were busy fighting Assyria. When those two weren't fighting is when Syria would raid Israel. This was diplomacy to him. You could buy 10 to 20 years of, of sure peace through diplomacy at this point, with the right negotiation, and that's what the king can see here. It's as if he's thinking, okay, I know for certain I could probably squeeze out 10 or 15 years if I can negotiate here with these kings to get these Syrians off my back. And I would actually rather do that because that's what I know can happen as opposed to trusting that God would actually deliver us forever from these people. It is a calculated move from a calculated heart. For the king of Israel, as it has been, faith equals what I can see, what I can control, what is in my best interest now. And as a result, we are shown a half-hearted response to this promise of victory by shooting half of his quiver. You should have struck five or six times, Elisha says. But here we are again, God's people half-heartedly embracing the victory he longs to give them. And as a result, Elisha prophesies that they will only strike down Syria three times and not put an end to them. And this is the first point. It's a common theme both in the Kings but also in the Old Testament. What God longs to do for his people to bring them lasting victory, to bring them under his care, to be their God for them to be his people. What he longs to do for them, he would do if only they would trust him. If only they would trust him. And this gets to the second point. The victory that God will give his people in verses 20 to 21. If you've noticed by now, nothing actually gets in the way of God. And our service always talks about this. Regardless of your sin even, your sin doesn't even have the ability of getting in the way of God going through and making good on his promises. As we enter into verse 20, this gets really interesting. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now, I don't know if this drew your attention. It certainly drew mine. It should cause us to pause. Okay, here is this amazing prophet that the Bible, or excuse me, that the book of the Kings has spent almost a third of its book, even though it's about 80 years, talking about. Yet, this man of God, he dies, and this is all he gets? (laughs) He doesn't get a whole verse. He gets a sentence. You would maybe expect that we would go on chapter 14 and 15, maybe even chapter 16, about the elaborate celebration of this man's life, perhaps maybe all the ways that we should uh, honor him uh, through, through burial. Uh, maybe there would be songs sung about this man, about how he will live on forever. But all we get here is he died and they buried him. It seems sad at first, but is it? See, I actually think it's one of the best, most hopeful lines in the entire book. Why do I say that? 
Because when we read scripture and we come to something like this where the text doesn't seem to make much of a person and his death, it should tell us, oh, maybe it's not all about this person. As great as Elisha was, maybe it's not all about him. Maybe there's something bigger that we should hope in. Maybe there's something bigger that what Elisha was doing, more importantly, what God was doing through Elisha, And what that was pointing to, maybe there's something bigger in that direction that we should be putting our faith and trust in. More like a life-giving God who was in the business of redeeming his people from slavery to himself. How about that? Like, where have we heard that, Exodus, throughout the rest of the Old Testament? I am in the business of redeeming you, of rescuing you, so you will be my people. Stop believing in all these other signs but believe in what they point to, right? That is the theme of the Old Testament. And just in case we weren't sure about this, and you can put on your, uh, you know, first audience hat here, be Israel and Babylon in captivity, you know, wondering, oh my goodness, what, what's going to happen? Elijah has died. Who's going to come after him? What is the Lord going to do? In case we were to forget that God was in the business of saving people, look at the story that ends Elijah's life. A story about something that was dead, but was restored to life. This is the victory of God that he will give his people. Immediately on the heels of the death of one of Israel's most prominent prophets, he is pointing the way to the true prophet and what he will ultimately do. I think for the time being, it'd be fun just to sort of though enter into this story a little bit. Uh, with me, right? You can imagine this scene of this person coming back to life. You're watching the game, right? One Saturday afternoon, you reach for your nachos and all of a sudden heart attack, you're gone, right? Dead. And here we're mourning Uncle Joe. He suddenly passed away watching the game in his favorite chair. And we're, we're, we're about to go through the processes of his funeral when in a weird, strained sequence of events, Uncle Joe's body, as it's being brought into the catacombs, gets somehow dropped on the bones of Elisha. And before you know it, Uncle Joe is alive. This has to be one of the craziest things to ever come across a nobody. And we don't even know the guy's name. What, what is this doing here? What does this all mean? God is telling Israel, I am not just in the business of giving you victory over your earthly foes. Syrians, Babylonians, Romans, whoever. But I am also in the business of giving you victory over your greatest enemy, death itself. But you won't believe me. And one of the reasons you don't believe me, which is the reason we are in this mess in the first place in the Kings, is because you dream too small. And I need to define that. When I say you dream too small, I do not mean name it and claim it theology by any means. I mean, it seems almost impossible for Israel to see God, to see Yahweh as bigger than any of their problems. God is saying to Israel, I've done everything imaginable to get you to trust me. I rescued your ancestors from Egypt through the Red Sea, mind you, but you would not listen. I raised up judges to deliver you from your oppressors, but you would not listen. I even gave you a king, which I told you would end up bad for you in the end. But you would not listen. And now I've given you through two of my prophets signs and wonders of life 
life-giving power to not only deliver you from your enemies, but to deliver you from death itself so that we could be together, but you would not listen. But it's as if God goes on. So here's the deal, Israel. Your idolatry, your apostasy is going to end up with you in exile from this. From this land. This is where you're going. If we finish out the rest of the kings, this is what's happening. God is preserving Israel's enemies to bring them in, to capture them, to take them over, and to exile them. And it's going to be devastating. But even so, I will never turn my back on you. My plans will still come to be. I will give you a new heart because I am the God who brings what? Dead things, like Uncle Joe here, to life. Now, that is hope for somebody in slavery under a foreign government in Babylon. And it should be hope for you too. This is the victory God will give his people. This is the victory he is committed to. Now, a point of application here. Let's play that tape forward a bit, if you will, right? This maybe we come back up to that 30,000 foot view here to 2016, where God has defeated death, where he has given life, new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's where that all culminates to. And the question for us has changed a bit from how big can you dream to what story do you live a part of? What story are you living in? Is it the one where God has or he has not defeated death through resurrection and will one day give new bodily life to your dead body so that you can be with God forever? Victory. If we are living in a story where this hasn't happened, then our God truly cannot be bigger than any of our most serious problems. But if we live in a story where he has defeated death, then I can actually give my life away, both generously and sacrificially, for the needs of others. For those in my church, for those in my family, my neighbor, strangers, enemies even. I can do that. I can actually begin to bring resurrection news into every sphere of life and culture that I come in contact with. In other words, I can begin to bring heaven down to earth. And I believe that's the point. But coming back, nosedive, back to 2 Kings, God has not done that yet for Israel. But he will. And this gets to the third point, how will we know that he will? What the hope of that victory is anchored in. This week I learned a German term called leitmotif. I'm sure I've heard this before, but it just sunk in this week. And uh, I want to share that with you. Some of you all know what this is. A leitmotif is a recurrent theme throughout a musical or literary composition associated with a particular person, idea, or situation. Example. Uh, If you're a Star Wars fan, for example, the Imperial March is Darth Vader's leitmotif. That is, every time he enters, that music of the Imperial March, and I'm not going to hum it for you, but you're humming it right now in your mind, 
shows up. Actually, when the music comes on, it's, it's such... It's so connected to who he is that when the music starts, before you even see Vader on the screen, you know what's coming. You know where you are in the the story. Perhaps another one, Jaws, which is probably the king of all light motifs, right? That alternating, those two alternating notes that tell you, get out of the water. Can't they hear it? Right? That is a light motif. But of course, there are light motifs for heroines in the story. Superman, Rocky, right? All of them have their own leitmotifs that either tell you help is on the way, or in the case, which is the case of Superman, or the one I prefer, Rocky, Eye of the Tiger, which once it's heard turns everyone listening into a heavyweight champion of something. All right, if you want motivation, just hit play on Eye of the Tiger. Well, the Bible has a leitmotif. It has leitmotifs all throughout Scripture. Um, but, but the main one that I want you to see, the main one that goes throughout the entire Old Testament, we just read and we just heard about it there in verses uh, 23. And that leitmotif says this. Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, some of you are like, it's been a while since I've heard those words. And I, I don't know if, if you were like me when I read this, this. I haven't heard this in all of Kings, and there's a reason for that. This is the first time it's shown up. And, and it's such a refrain. It is such a beautiful song uh, because of what it says. And what it says is how God is going to make good on his promises. It's how God is going to rescue his people. That he's never going to go back on his promises. And those promises are anchored all the way back to this guy named Abraham. This is why the New Testament doesn't always make sense to us without the Old Testament. If you're Israel and you're reading this, you have to be wondering, okay... God is still sticking to his promises, going all the way back to Abraham. He's saying they are still good, but what is that going to look like? How long, O oh Lord, are the people in Babylon, Babylonian captivity crying out and saying? And there, on the opening pages of Matthew's gospel, though, we see it. Through Abraham's offspring will come a Savior who will be a blessing to the nations. Get ready for Christmas, right? But Jesus says this throughout his entire gospel ministry. Matthew 22, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God uh, who is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The victory God promises throughout all of scripture is always Anchored to God himself. And as we move into Paul's letters, even the church, that leitmotif, if you will, changes from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to he has risen. Cue the music, right? Like this is what this means for us now. For as Christ has died, you have died also. And as he will rise, so you will rise also. This is the leitmotif of the New Testament, of the early church going into the future to proclaim the message of resurrection, to proclaim the message of God's victory over death and his rescue of his people. All of that coming forward from the pages of 2 Kings 13. By three words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that God will be our God and we will be his people. What does this all mean? 
We've seen the victory of God when he longs, the victory he longs to give his people. We see the victory he will give his people. And then lastly, we see what the hope of that victory is really anchored in. It's anchored in, in, in himself. And what does this mean? Well, as we one last time leave the runway of Second Kings and look out over the whole story of Scripture as we've been doing on and off, we see many things that are true about the God that we read about in Second Kings that are true about God throughout all of Scripture. And the one that I want you to leave with here is this. God is all in on saving his people. He is all in on saving his people. If the king of Israel can only fire three arrows, God will empty the chamber in his wholehearted commitment to his people. And this wholehearted commitment is seen so clearly with his relationship to Israel in the Old Testament as we've been navigating through this fall, but also in the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. On every single page, the Gospels, we see God's wholehearted, all in approach to his people through Jesus, being tempted in every way by Satan to carrying his own cross to Calvary. There is no question that the God of the Bible looks at his church and he says, I am all in. And this is grace. Don't confuse it for anything else. Why? Because we, like Israel in the kings here, do not deserve that grace, but we get it anyways. We don't deserve a spouse that is that committed to us when we are so unfaithful to him. But he stays. And he says, I'm not going anywhere. And we get that. So what does God want from us then? What are we leaving with here from the kings? Could I suggest one thing, that he wants us to be all in as well. That there is an invitation here for you and me to be all in as well, to be a part of this resurrection life that is coming down from heaven one day, someday. And you know what that actually looks like to you and me? And this isn't exciting. This is actually very mundane. What it looks like for us is the same thing it looks like for Israel right now in 2 Kings 13. It looks like faith. And repentance. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. Idolatry leads us to exile. Your worship of other gods will lead you further and further and further away from God himself. But faith and repentance leads to the promised land. Trusting the promises of God in all areas of your life. When you fail, when you covet, right? When you lie, when you steal, when you worship other gods than me, repent. Come back. Believing that the promises are still true for you in spite of your sin. That's what it looks like for Israel to be all in. And that's what it looks like for you and for me to be all in as well. So where are you trusting God well? And where are you not trusting God well? And another way to ask ask that question is where are you repenting well? And where are you not repenting well? Because trusting and repenting actually go hand in hand. My repenting of God is not me uh, in one, well, it's... There was behavior at some point that wasn't trusting God, but repenting is trusting God as well, too. So you might say this. I am absolutely killing it in my love for neighbor and community. I mean, I am killing hospitality. You want to learn about that. You need to come set up shop next to me. I'm doing it well. This might be you out there. Um, But you might also be saying I'm having a hard time trusting God with my money. What does being all in look like specifically here? Does it look like giving all of your money away? 
I don't, I don't know. I don't, I doubt it. But let me give you a first step here from 2 Kings 13. What it looks like is repenting and asking God to begin to show you um, what trusting him with your money begins to look like. And that looks like asking those around you for wisdom in that area because you begin to care about your money differently. You begin to see it not as your own, but as God's. As a symbol of his goodness towards you now all of a sudden. And so I don't make an idol of it. I actually demonstrate that by giving it away in the form of a tithe. Why? Because my dependence comes back to God alone. And that's what it's like to trust him. When we can't trust him fully. In whatever area it might be, mind you. Come back to 2 Kings 13 and see yourself first as the one who is only able to fire off three arrows into the ground when God has promised you new life and victory. But don't stop there. Let that move you towards verse 22 where God still has what? Compassion for you. That's for you too. And he does not turn his back on you and let that move you to repentance, to trusting God in new and fresh ways all over again. But let's reverse this quickly. Let's flip that. You're killing it and writing checks to people, right? Like you're giving more than 10%. You're actually giving 10 and percent and you're killing it, right? Thanks for laughing at that. You give like Jesus tells you to give generously and sacrificially. But you have absolutely no Jesus love in your life for your neighbor or for people that are around your neighborhood or whatever. You like your people and that's all that you like. What does it look like to be all in here? And again, it's finding someone or a pastor to talk about this, to begin revealing your heart to people about why it is that you are like this. It doesn't necessarily mean that you immediately start up an urban renewal program or hop on the next plane to Africa. Trust me, they don't need you over there either. Right? It means you make a step towards saying, Jesus says, love your neighbor. And I know my heart in this is wrong. and I know his is right. And I care enough about him and his gospel to begin changing my heart on this as well. But did you notice what we just uncovered right there? Repentance isn't about changing behavior or saying that I'm sorry as it turns out, repentance in our, in our lives, and certainly for Israel in this time and place, what being all in is, at its heart, is an authority issue. It's not about behavior. It's not about, I just need more faith. It's whose authority am I really under? The king of Israel stops his arrows not because he can't or doesn't believe in God. It's because he believes in, him, in himself more. He doesn't want to give that up. And that's where 2 Kings 13 flies off the pages some 2,500 years later and comes down hard into our laps this morning. At the end of the day, we want to be king instead of laying down our crowns and pointing at Jesus and saying, you are the Christ, not me. What makes the king so relatable, what makes Israel so relatable to us is we do not want to give up our authority and we do not want to submit to someone else's authority for our own lives. And you know where that ultimately takes you. 
The same place it's going to take Israel in the coming chapters. Read ahead. The Old Testament calls it exile. It is, it is the furthest punishment of God's curses in Deuteronomy. It is the last resort to getting his people's attention to trust him. This is the God who has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the challenge we have for us today is that we don't fully understand that to say that you're the Christ means I give up my authority in all areas of life. Not just some of them, but all of them. My finances, my time, my sexuality, my leisure, what I watch, what I listen to, how I talk to people, how I talk to my parents, my siblings. Even the authority structures God has set up for the church saying you're the Christ means I give all of it up to live under that rule. But instead, too often we see God's rule in our lives as a partnership at best or just good advice at worst. And Jesus did not die for you in order to set up a partnership. He did not die for you to go around thinking nice things about him and sharing those from time to time as if they were good advice. He died to have you forever. And that is the good news. That is the victory that we are getting a taste of in 2 Kings 13 as we leave it this morning. But as we come to the pages of the New Testament and we see, that is what he has done for you. Mark 1, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news, that God has made good on his promises in Jesus Christ, that he has been victorious for us over our deepest and darkest enemy, death. That he has once again proven himself to be all in for those he loves. <clears throat> but you've got to be willing to disarm. You've got to be willing to surrender all. You have to lay down your crown, friends. I do too. And that's where I want to leave you. As we say goodbye, for now, to the king's. If you're taking anything away from this series and into Advent next week, take this, that God is absolutely all in on saving his people. He's all in on you personally, wherever you are with him this morning. And the question that we have is, what is keeping you from saying, here I am, here I am? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word and we thank you for what it does for us and how it doesn't leave us in our despair and how it leads us instead to your uh, incredible compassion and love for your people. Uh, Would that put us in awe? Would that allow us to come to you and say, all right, I I don't really know which direction to move first, but I want to hear more about this. I I want to know more about this God who is in the business of rescuing the people to be with them for the rest of his life and for our lives as well. Uh, Would we taste this victory and know it uh, as we leave here this morning? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.